Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the time of worship. We thank You for the opportunity to approach You as we have and as we do in prayer. And we're so grateful, Father, that we have a loving Father who wraps His arms around us. We have a loving Savior who has rescued us. We have a loving Spirit who fills us and indwells us. God, we stand before You tonight as disciples, seeking, as we talked about Sunday, to be brought out of ourselves, seeking to be a people who are real and authentic about our discipleship and not hiding it. Father, it's my prayer that each time we open Your Word to study, that You, powerfully, spiritually, Lord, You'd move us beyond head knowledge to that place, Father, of action in our lives, of application of these truths, and of living in such a way that would bring glory to You. I pray as we finish this great Gospel that we have so enjoyed and relished every moment of, that You will entrench these things deep in our hearts. Father, You would implant them that they might grow. That we could walk trusting and believing even more so in Your Son Jesus, who is our King, our Savior, and our Lord. So now we ask tonight by Your Spirit that You'd lead us into Your Word, into the book of Matthew one more time in Jesus' name. Amen. For every breath speaking truth, there is yet another breath spreading lies. For every pen set to the writing of God's absolute Word, there have been many pens seeking to undermine these foundational truths. Make no mistake... There is an adversary who is set against the plans and purposes of God, set against His glorification, set against our salvation, which is one of the things that brings such great glory to God. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12.9 that He is called the great dragon, the serpent of old who is called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. This devil, as we've talked about before, is not a vague, spiritualized, dark side of the force, He's not something esoteric. He is a real demonic ruler of actual and organized forces of darkness and evil. Where do you get that, Rick? From the Word of God. And from the mouth of Jesus, who very very clearly calls him out as that old deceiver. I read to you again, as, as Paul concludes his letter to the church at Ephesus, a passage that I'm sure many of you have heard many times. But Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he begins to list the armor of God. And these are very practical and tangible things that the Lord grows and develops in the life of the disciple, of the believer. He says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. That is the belt of truth. Put it on. Cinch it up. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Which is an important one because we are called to righteousness. Not only the righteousness God gives us, But we are called to live lives pursuing righteousness. 
We're not called to wallow in our sin simply because we've been saved. Oh, I've got grace, I've got salvation, now I can do whatever I want. If you choose to do that, you walk around with no breastplate, no protection against your heart, which is why righteousness is right there. He goes on and says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Notice that it's faith that extinguishes the lies. Without faith, you begin to wallow, you doubt, you're unsure. But with faith, you can stand up against Satan and the lies propagated, some of which I'll read to you in just a moment. You can stand right up and say, that's, that's bogus, that's baloney. How do you know that, Rick? Because I have faith in the true living God. And he says, take the helmet of salvation. That's so interesting. It's, it's the, the breastplate of righteousness protects my heart. The helmet of salvation protects my mind, my brain, my very thoughts. I know where I'm headed. I am absolutely assured. I have reasoned this out, and I know that I am a saved child of God. And Satan can try and tell me otherwise, but at best his arrows will glance off the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which we hold in our hands, and he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, with this in view. Be alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And so he is with the two offensive weapons that we have, and that is the Word of God and prayer. That's how we go on the attack. The rest of it defends and protects us. But God's word and prayer are how we take it to the enemy and we stick it to him. Why am I starting out with all this? Well, a couple of things have come up this week. One, if you got my email, HR 1913 was voted on today. Does anyone know what the outcome was? I'm amazed, as serious a bill as this was, as serious a piece of legislation, no one talked about it on the news. I was on every channel trying to find some outcome. I, I went online trying to find the outcome. So I, I don't know. I'll, I'll try and find out. And, or maybe you all let's find out what the outcome was. It's the Local Law Enforcement Hate Crimes Act of 2009. Sounds like a good idea. Until you begin to read into it and realize there are huge gaping loopholes which will allow anti-Christian organizations to silence the preaching of the gospel. That this hate crime act calls it a hate crime simply to read passages of Scripture that would indicate a negative view toward homosexuality. Which means, as I said in the email, there are a number of passages that, as a pastor, I would not be allowed to touch. This is in free America. The America I grew up in that allows us freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And our freedom of speech is threatened by acts like this that are sneaking that they, they sneak in, they, they come along surreptitiously, suddenly they're being voted on. I found out about it yesterday, being voted on today, barely had time to get word out to you and say, call your congressman. And I hope you did. Lies are being spread, and the truth is being, well, if, if it was possible, they're attempting to suppress the truth. Well, here's something else, and these come out all the time, but USA Today, Monday, April 13th, in an article written by... Tom Crattenmaker <laughs> called Fighting Words. And from a Christian perspective, he says it's been a year of retreat and retrench for conservative Christendom that enjoyed such outside, outsized influence over American culture and politics through most of the decade. The evangelical in chief in the White House, gone. Limits on federal funding for embryonic stem cell research, gone. James Dobson, head of Focus on the Family, and in many respects, the Christian right itself, resigned. 
Well, that right there tells me something about this man's faith. For though I respect James Dobson, he is not the head of Christianity. That would be Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. But he writes, and now, on the always contested ground of religious studies literature, here comes more challenges to traditionalist views of the Bible and Christian faith from a lineup of big-name, liberal-leaning scholars and theologians. Leading the pack is Bart Ehrman, with his examination of the discrepancies of the holy book, in his book called Jesus Interrupted. This University of North Carolina religious studies professor mounts evidence against the literalist conceptions of the Bible as factual history and a divinely transmitted testament to an afterlife-focused religion called Christianity. If the Bible is the literal word of God, Ehrman asks, how could it be inconsistent on so many details, large and small? I hear him say this, and I'll tell you, the first thought that popped into my mind is, have you read it? I mean, have you really read it? To come along and tell me that it's inconsistent. When, gang, you know, we've, we've gone through this, uh, this book in, in many of the books of the Bible. Not the whole thing yet. We're working on it. But all the way through 2 Kings, Genesis through 2 Kings, we've done Revelation. We're just about to finish Matthew tonight. And I'm telling you, the more I study, the more obvious it is there are no inconsistencies. Nothing that is not explained in Scripture itself. And by the different perspectives that come into the writing of the Word of God. Well, he says, let's start with an example appropriate to the just concluded Easter season, marking the Savior's death and resurrection. As Jesus was dying on the cross, was he in agony, questioning why God had forsaken him? Or was he serene, praying for his executioners? It depends, depends, Ehrman points out, on whether you're reading the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus was on the cross, He was in agony, praying to His Father, experiencing that separation. And while He was on the cross, He was in great serenity, praying forgiveness for His people. Why is that you know, mutually exclusive? Why can't that be the same thing? Why can't the same man be experiencing and go th- going through both as two different perspectives of what was going on saw Him? Yes, He was doing both. There is no inconsistency there. He, he goes on, and I won't do the whole article, but... It depends, Ehrman points out, on whether you're reading Mark or Luke, regarding Jesus' birthplace of Bethlehem. Had his parents traveled there for a census, as Luke tells us? Or is it where they happened to live, as Matthew tells us? They traveled there, and then they lived there during the census. Duh! I mean, these things are obvious, and yet this guy's coming at it and trying to stir up, as so often happens, trying to stir up doubt. Doubt to the mind of the believer. Doubt to someone who might be on the fence. Did Jesus speak of himself as God? Yes, in John's Gospel. No, in Matthew's Gospel. Wrong again. We just studied Matthew's Gospel. Is it unclear to anybody as to whether or not Jesus thought himself to be God? And if it is, go back and listen to the whole series and you will see God in the flesh in the Gospel of Matthew as much as in the Gospel of John. Well, he writes in different places. I highlighted a couple of things. It says, An eye to church history in the big picture leads to an appreciation of the inevitability, even desirability, of varying perspectives and changing interpretations around the complex and challenging meaning of the figure Jesus around whom the New Testament revolves. In other words, you can't take a literalist view. You have to be metaphorical, you have to be allegorical, and you have to allow for all manner of interpretations because it's just too difficult if you try and be literal. I'm sorry. 
it's too difficult if you go away from the literal interpretation. And you know, if you've been at the bridge any amount of time, I stand on the literal truth of the Word of God. It is as it is. What He says is what He meant. What He means is what He says. And I take it that way. And where there might be discrepancy for some people, I step back and say, okay, I can see where you're saying there's contradiction, so let's look closer. Let's study a little harder. Let's see, is it contradiction or is it just a perspective from this angle? Right now, I'm looking at less. He's wearing glasses. Someone sitting right behind him might not mention that he's wearing glasses. Two perspectives of the same man in the same place at the same time. Is that a contradiction? I don't mean to get all worked up, but oh, what works me up is not that this shakes or challenges my faith. What works me up is there are people all over the world who are very shallow in their belief in, in Jesus, just hanging on, who will see a book like this and it will blow them out of the water. And this guy will be responsible for that. If criticisms of Ehrman veer toward the personal, <laughs> it's because his evidence, the Bible's own text, is what it is. And there is no denying the inconsistencies he surfaces between the various Gospels and letters that form the New Testament. Ehrman's central message is that the New Testament is a human book written by different people in different situations with different audiences and different objectives. If taken seriously, he says his scholarship and writing, if taken seriously, are bound to change the faith of one who believes in the Bible as God's perfect, holy writ. This stuff makes me hopping mad. But you know, as I sit back and think about it, challenges to the truth of the Word of God have been with us since the first book was penned. For 2,000 years, people have tried to undermine the reality. They have tried to alter the truth. Literally, they have tried to bury the truth. I'm beginning with this tonight because as we look in Matthew 27, as Matthew rounds out the tail end of his Gospel, we see a group of men we see a group of men who are trying to bury the truth. With Jesus' resurrection, even before the resurrection happens, we see a group of men attempting to bury the truth with the body of Jesus. I hope in all of our studies that you can see, as I do, that inconsistencies are not the issue. Proof is not the problem. Faith is the central issue. Faith is the thing on which people either stand or they fall. You either believe or you don't. And it's amazing. When you believe, as we'll talk about in a minute, when you believe, then you see. When you put your faith in Jesus, then He shows you and you are able to stand. Verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir... We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Did you catch that? What did they call Jesus? That deceiver. The deceiver, you know who the deceiver is. We started out talking about him. That is Satan, the old liar. He is the deceiver. But the chief priests now now turn, and knowing this, they call Jesus that deceiver, the very name historically applied to the one who deceived Eve in the garden, and that is the evil one, Satan. Back in Matthew 12, you may recall, the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. They were saying that Jesus is satanically empowered. 
in response to this, in Matthew 12.31, Jesus said, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? We defined it. It's calling Jesus Satan, in essence. It's saying that the truth is a lie. It is altering the very foundation of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. It's trying to say He is not who He said He was. He is not truth. He is not the way. He is not the life. No, He is the deceiver. And that's blasphemy. And here they are, the day after Jesus' death, saying, that deceiver said He was going to rise again in three days. We've got to do something about this. They were so seared in their hearts that they could not see the truth standing before them. They could not see the truth in His death. They would not see the truth in His resurrection. Jesus the deceiver. We hear that applied to Christians more and more today. Truth is undermined by arrogant relativism at almost every turn. People looking at you and saying you're fools for believing in this. You know, it's just old, die-hard beliefs that really don't have any grounding in the truth. Something else is curious here. Apparently, Jesus' prediction about His resurrection was well known. His enemies remembered here what His disciples had forgotten. His enemies on the day after His death were saying, He said He would rise in three days. What are the disciples thinking right now? I mean, they had been taught this Time and time again, I'm going to rise after three days. And yet they're wallowing in fear and despair while the enemies are worried. Matthew 26:59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put Him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Even as this false witness was trying to slant the words of Jesus about rebuilding the temple in three days, the Jewish leaders knew He was talking about His body. As evidenced now by the day after His death when they said He he said in three days He would rise. They knew exactly that the, the illusion Jesus was making about the temple being rebuilt in three days was about His body. They were aware of this. So why, if his enemies remembered this, why did his own disciples forget it? Why didn't Peter and John and the rest of the eleven cling to that promise of Jesus? They sank into emotion when they should have been standing on truth. And when emotion gets the better of us, whether it's positive or negative emotion, when emotion begins to drive us, that's when we start to lose sight of truth. We do not live an emotional religion. It's not that we can't be emotional about grace because grace is an emotional thing. It's not that we don't rise up to the heights of joy in worship or even that we settle in those sorrowful moments when we consider Jesus on the cross. But gang, if we're driven by emotion, we will miss the promises of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus were were emotionally charged and when emotion takes charge, it is far too easy to slip off the foundation of truth. They were in that place of despair and worry and doubt and fear. All emotion driven. The chief priests, they were thinking. They were remembering what he said, that he would rise again. The article I began with stirred up some emotion in me. 
fact, the article said, who among us isn't inclined to fight back when our deepest, most cherished beliefs are challenged? The writer, rather than standing on truth, is compromising in his response. The writer is proclaimed a Christian, by the way, who wrote that article. And he comes to the end of it saying, why not read books like this and why not alter our views and accept them and maybe we've learned some things here that are, that are good to know and the Bible doesn't all have to be true and he kind of goes on and on and he compromises. But even worse than compromises when people of faith fight back with emotion rather than with thoughtful, God-reasoned, biblically sound answers. Which is why we open up the Bible and study that we might have an answer for everyone who asks. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Let's reason together. Let's talk about this. He says, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the lamb. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Let's be reasonable, the Lord says. But when our faith is more about our deepest, most cherished beliefs, translation, traditions, when our faith is grounded in those things rather than the Word of God, we end up either compromising or we end up running and hiding like the apostles who got all emotional instead of standing in truth. That's why as we read in the beginning, the belt of truth is the first piece of armor. Ephesians 6.14 The very first thing you're called to strap on is the truth. That's why one of the only two offensive weapons we have is the sword of the Word of God, along with prayer, Ephesians 6, 17, and 18. Faith is required, but the proof of the truth is rock solid, and God does not call us into unreasonable blindness. He calls us to a faith grounded in truth. And so let's reason that way. Acts chapter 17 tells us that uh, when Paul had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. As was his custom. This is what Paul did. Go into a town, open up the Scriptures, and talk about it. And let's get into what does the Word really say. I'm not just going to let some guy's article shake my faith. No, I'm going to go to the Word and say, what does it say about Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel? He says there are discrepancies. Do I see discrepancies? No fear, gang. We go to the Word because the Word has those answers for us. Paul in Acts 18 verse 4 went to Corinth and we're told he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. In Acts chapter 20 verse 27, Paul is now in Ephesus and he says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I'm giving you all the truth, the big picture, everything that is in the Word. Well, back in Matthew, the chief priests and Pharisees, they remembered Jesus' teaching. And so like many liberal-leaning scholars and theologians, they sought to bury it. They sought to guard against it. Verse 64. Therefore, give orders, they said, for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. The Pilate said to them, you have a guard, Go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Consider this. The body of Jesus, as we talked about on Sunday, was lovingly laid in the tomb by Joseph and Nicodemus. They wrapped that body, it rested on a stone slab. It was encased in the customary linen strips dipped in a mixture of myrrh. And uh, what was the other thing? Aloe. Good. 
dipped in there, that burial spice mixture, it would have hardened encasing the body. And by the way, when they did it, a little more info for you, they would have wrapped each arm separately, each leg separately, the torso separately, and then they would go from the feet all the way up to the neck, wrapping the entire body in those strips. So you are double wrapped. If you're dead, that's okay, because you're not going to have a problem with it. But can you imagine being alive? (laughs) That would freak me out. And then the face napkin would go over the face. And this is how they did it. So here's Jesus in this two to three inch thick shell all around his body, hardened there. And the stone was rolled in front of the grave. The stone was a flat two to three ton stone. It was set into a groove that was furrowed out, a channel there in the bedrock right in front of the grave. And the channel would start at a higher place and go down and then back up out to a higher place. So rolling it in front of the tomb wouldn't be so difficult. Rolling it back out would be very difficult. And that was set there, that that great stone. Then Pilate said, go ahead and take a guard. A Roman guard gang was anywhere from 10 to 16 armed men. Minimum of 10, but usually about 16 would be a guard in Rome. And then the Roman seal was set across the tomb. What's that? It's a rope that was pushed in or pressed into clay on either side of the stone. So they would set it onto one side of the rock, one over here, they'd take a rope and press it in, and that soft clay would harden and hold the rope across it. In that clay, when it was still soft, they would press the signet ring of, probably of Pilate in this case, but of a Roman ruler or authority. They would press the ring in both sides, so that it was the seal of Rome across that tomb. The breaking of that rope was punishable by death. You don't break that. You don't mess with the seal of Rome. If you do so, you will die. So the Jewish leaders and their Roman counterparts took great pains to be sure to leave no stone turned, if you know what I mean. Verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Our God and Father is a class act. I just love the picture of the resurrection and what God did in it. How these powerful, armed Roman soldiers, this guard, panicked, freaked out, and passed out. And so they're lying around in little heaps of fear, passed out, and this striking visual description of what happened is just wonderful. There's that earthquake causing the fearquake as this mighty Roman guard couldn't handle it. It wasn't, by the way, God that they saw that freaked them out so badly that they passed out. It was just an angel. If they had seen God, they'd be dead. But just the vision of the angel, and that should tell you something about angels. I'm not going to go into it again, but the whole angels on Christmas trees thing, I'm telling you, man, clothes as white as snow and an appearance like lightning. And if you've ever looked at lightning, you know when it strikes and you kind of, you're seeing that same strike pattern everywhere you look for five or ten minutes afterwards. His whole appearance was like that. To look at him would have been a blinding experience. But listen to this. In Revelation 19, verse 10. The Apostle John wrote that I fell at his feet, at an angel's feet, to worship him. And he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. And your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. A powerful angel saying, no, 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 no. We're co-laborers in the gospel. 
You and I, we work together. The Hebrew writer says, what are angels but ministering spirits? Paul says in Corinthians, hey, did you not know we're going to judge the angels? These beings are mighty and powerful, but they are no more servants of God, no less servants of God than you are or than I am. The point is this, we serve alongside some mighty beings, but the greatest being we serve is Jesus Christ Himself, and He is our focus, and He deserves the glory. Well, verse 5 going on, The angel said to the woman, Women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as He said. Come, see the place where He was lying. Go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to His disciples. You could call this the first gospel sermon. What the angel speaks here is the first evangelical sermon following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there were but two points. I know, you're saying, Pastor Rick, you could learn something from this angel. Just two points. The points are come and see, go and tell. Come and see, he says first. And then go and tell. Come and see, verse 6. Come and see what? Come and see the place where he was lying. The place where his body used to be. Gang, the empty tomb is the silent witness of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And it is absolutely key, the fact that his body was not there is the truth and the proof of the resurrection. Now hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. But I want to consider this question here. Who was it that raised Jesus from the dead? Who raised Jesus from the dead? It wasn't the angel. You know that. Spencer says, God, he loves to jump ahead of me. That's okay. (laughs) But think about this. Why was the angel there? What was the whole point of, of him rolling back the stone? I mean, that's all he did. He rolled back the stone. Gang, listen. The angel did not roll back the stone so Jesus could get out. He rolled back the stone so the disciples could look in. The stone would have no... Jesus would have no problem in his resurrected body going right through the stone. We're told later that the disciples were behind a locked door in a closed room and Jesus appeared among them. In His resurrected state, there was no barrier that could keep Jesus out or keep Him in. The whole point of the angel being there was to pull the stone back so the women, and then later John and Peter, could look in the tomb and see with their own eyes. Come and see, the angel says. Come and see. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, the Bible is specific on this point, and Spencer's got the right answer, though very generic. So let's get more specific. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Galatians 1 verse 1, Paul said, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Pretty clear cut, isn't it? But wait a minute. Do you remember what Jesus said? Back in John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say God would raise it up. He said, I will do it. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus claimed that he himself would raise himself. Now please understand, yes, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, but according to Scripture in his own words, Jesus Christ, God the Son, raised himself from the dead as well. John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, so that I may take it again. 
No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, which we see in the crucifixion. Jesus in complete control of everything going on. He died when He chose to die. He laid down His life when He was ready, when the job was done. But Jesus said, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to raise it up. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus the Son raised Himself from the dead. But there's another player you probably could guess. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Gang, God the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Why does it matter to break down the Trinity in this and talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hey, they were all three involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I bring to mind God the Spirit because Paul says this same Spirit is in you. This same Spirit indwells the believer in Jesus. The power that was part of the process of the raising of Jesus from the dead lives in you. The power is in you and with you. And that is a great power indeed. Well, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three raised Jesus from the dead. This has got to be one of those uh, contradictions, the liberal scholar would say. No contradiction. It is a confirmation of the triune nature of our God that every aspect of who God is was involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. While there was sorrowful separation in the crucifixion, Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no separation in the resurrection. Father, Son, Holy Spirit worked in unity in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the angel says, Come and see. Come and see the power of God who broke the chains of death to to bear out the living hope of a real and eternal resurrection. Come and see what's happened. The body's not here. And I remind you of a verse we read recently on Easter Sunday, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And Paul writes, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at His coming. We will be raised by the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's our great hope. I hope that's why you're here tonight. Without the resurrection, this is a waste of time. You're just sitting there shivering in your scriptures as opposed to the joy and the hope, the living hope of Jesus and His resurrection. Come and see, the angel proclaimed. Now you might say, well, but there really wasn't anything there to see. And that's absolutely right. The gospel message of the angel, listen to me, the gospel message of the angel was an invitation to faith. Come and look. There's nothing to see. Right. Believe. Believe without seeing. Believe without seeing Jesus. It wasn't Jesus sitting on the stone. It was the angel sitting on the stone. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The women saw nothing, and gang, they believed. How do you know they believed? Because they ran with great joy and great fear. That reverent fear. Something marvelous has happened. And they were joyful and they could not wait to get back and tell the disciples what the angel had said, what they had seen, which was nothing. They had faith in that moment in the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle John, we're told in John, looked into the tomb. He saw and believed. What did he see? Nothing! 
Nobody. He did not see Jesus sitting there smiling going, check it out, John, I'm alive. He saw nothing and believed. Because gang, belief always precedes seeing. Faith comes first. Faith first, and then you'll see. I can guarantee it. You put your faith in Jesus Christ first, and you will begin to see things you never saw before you stepped out in faith. That's the way it works. It's the way God wants it to, to work in our lives. If you're struggling to believe, you will not muster faith. You will not muster belief yourself. Ask the Spirit of the living Christ to increase your faith and fortify it. 1 John 5, 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Come and see, the angel said, and then go and tell. Go and tell. Verse 7 He said, go quickly and tell His disciples He's risen from the dead and behold, He's going ahead of you into Galilee. So these women, we've got Mary from Magdala, Mary the mother of James, Salome and Joanna. Those are the four as we look at all four Gospels. And Matthew only mentions two of them. And we look at some of the other Gospel writers and discover there were four women gathered together. Oh, contradiction! No. Different perspectives, more information given from different places. But those four women were there and they become the first human evangelists. After the angel preaches this evangelical sermon, come and see, go and tell, they take off. And they were the first ones to carry the gospel message, which is what? He has risen just as He said. He has risen. And some of the disciples thought the women were nuts. They thought they were crazy. Come on. You guys are seeing things. It's not possible. I can't believe what I'm hearing. What about that? What if people reject your message of faith? What if you tell someone you truly do believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they go, (laughs) it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they reject your message of faith, the gospel message, or if they accept it. The question is, do you know whom you have believed? Do you know who you believe? Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. He is able to produce the truth. All i got to do is believe in Him. So fear, filled with reverent fear and great joy, verse 9 tells us, Behold, as they ran, Jesus met them and greeted them And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to My brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see Me. How did Jesus greet them? The New American Standard Bible tells us that He greeted them. The King James tells us what He said. The Greek word there is kairo, which means rejoice. And I can so imagine Jesus saying that. As the women are hurrying along, they haven't seen Jesus, but they believe He is raised. Faith first, and then sight. Faith first, and then sight. They ran with joy, emerging with that faith that He's risen from the dead, and they're going to tell the apostles, and suddenly Jesus is there, and He goes, Rejoice! Check it out! Happy day! I am here! And they fell at His feet. They grabbed His feet, the Bible tells us. They worshipped Him. You can only worship God. Worshipping any other being, be it an angel or any lesser being than God, is blasphemy. You can only worship God. They worshipped God that night, or that day, as they worshipped Jesus Christ. 
And now more than simply the word of the angel and the emptiness of the tomb that birthed their faith, now they had seen the Lord Himself and would bring that testimony with them to the apostles, to Galilee, and beyond. And I think this is great. We get to head back to that place where we started, the Galilee. Jesus doesn't say, go tell the apostles to meet me on the Mount of Olives, quick! Go tell them to meet me in downtown Jerusalem. Go tell, go tell them to meet me on Ben Yehuda Street. We'll do some shopping. We'll talk about what happened. He says, don't, don't, don't tell them to go. He doesn't say, go tell them to meet me on the Temple Mount. We're going to make a show. He says, tell them to go back to the Galilee. I'll meet them there. Why? I've shared before, I love the Galilee. And for anyone who goes to Israel, there is such a dramatic difference between the region of the Galilee and the region of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is intense. It's city. It's fast-paced. It's moving. It's filled with some pretty intense religious differences. There's a a disquiet there and a constancy of, of energy and intensity. The Galilee is like another world. It's peaceful. It's rural. You can see Jesus growing up there, a country boy. That's where the ministry started. Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. What better place to regather and to reassure and to reconfirm and to recommit the apostles before He would ultimately ascend to the heavens. And he would ascend there from a mount in the Galilee. And they would watch him go up. But we know what's cool about this. Go to the Galilee, he says, for 40 days. In the Galilee region, he would appear to people. 40 days from his crucifixion to his ascension that he remained on the earth and he appeared to different groups. To the apostles. To other disciples. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.6 to 500 believers at one time in one place he appeared. And there in the Galilee, Jesus would give His followers the greatest commission ever given to man, which we will talk about on Sunday. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, verse 11. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, You are to say His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. Watch this. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is, Matthew wrote, to this day. And you could extend that across 2,000 years because even in Israel today, this story is widely spread among the Jews. The resurrection was a hoax. It's just a hoax. The disciples did it. They came and took the body. We started out tonight and I said, for every breath speaking truth, there is another breath speaking or spreading lies. We started that way because, interestingly, before we get to the Great Commission, and we're going to talk through that on Sunday, this story of the stolen body of Jesus is still reported. It is still accepted to this day, not only among the Jews, but among other people. But I said a few minutes ago that the the empty tomb... The empty tomb is the silent witness of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. With that in mind, consider a few things before we finish tonight. Several theories against the resurrection of Jesus have been placed out there. One of the first, and it's the one we read about right here in the Scriptures, the apostolic grave robbery theory. 
that sometime in the night, while these guys were sleeping, the apostles snuck in, grabbed the body of Jesus, and stole away with it quickly. If the apostles had pulled off such a brazen and courageous act, let me just ask this question. Why did one of their own later on write the following, John chapter 20, verse 19, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Why, if they were bold and courageous, did John write that they were scared out of their wits, locked behind a door? Why paint themselves with such a negative brush? You know, Why not say, if you stole away the body, man, if you're going to make a lie, make it a good one. Don't say we stole the body. He resurrected and we were there to see it. And we all went straight up and began to preach the truth. No, he said we were scared out of our minds. Something happened that turned abject fear into absolute courage. And it would take about 40 days in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 10 days after that. Something changed with these guys. By the way, to pull it off for the disciples would would mean that they would have to overcome the Roman guard by force. Or, as some have tried to claim, they would have to sneak in while the guard slept. But if the guard had slept all 10 to 16 minutes, they were sound asleep, well, explain to me why were they not summarily executed, as Roman law would demand. Roman military law allowed them to sleep in shifts of no more than four. So if there were 16 men there, 12 would have been wide awake and watching. If there were 10 men there, six would have been wide awake and watching. And the Romans knew their law well. And by the way, wouldn't the movement of a two-ton stone scraping against its stone channel wake somebody up? Quiet, John. Sorry, Peter. Move the stone. Down. Are they awake? No, they're good. Okay, get him. It's, it's a ridiculous claim. It doesn't make sense that they could pull something like that off. Well, that's the apostolic grave robbery theory. Another theory is that the Jews themselves took the body of Christ. That's the second one. Jewish grave robbery theory. The chief priest said, let's take the body ourselves. That doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? Why would they do something that would only support what Jesus said was going to happen, that his body wouldn't be there anymore? And had they done it, and all of a sudden this resurrection uh, story begins to be spread about, all they would have to do is go, ah, nice try. Here's the body. Come check it out. We can disprove this immediately. We'll just show you the body, and here it is. Why didn't they do that? Because they couldn't produce the body, because they didn't steal the body, because there was no body there to steal. One of the most comical anti-resurrection stories is, number three, the swoon theory. Have you heard this one? I just love this one. After 39 lashes crucifixion, a spear producing blood and water from Jesus' side, which is a sure sign of cardiac arrest and cardiac failure. Jesus just swooned. He fainted. (laughs) I've just had a bad day. (laughs) But he wasn't really dead. The swoon theory. Then after being encased in the linen body wrap under about 100 pounds of pizza spices, Jesus suddenly resuscitated. (gasps) I'm feeling better. This is great. I'm healed up now. And so somehow he extricates himself from that hardened body wrap. 
Imagine this, if you will, because it is ridiculous. You're Jesus, you're in the tomb, you've somehow gotten out of the wrath, you've healed yourself miraculously, and now you're sitting there looking at the stone, which is in the groove in front of the rock. How are you going to do that? And then, once you've moved the stone away yourself, now you emerge to 12 to 16 Roman soldiers and overcome them all. Following that, you make your way on pierced feet, mind you, all the way up to the Galilee. The swoon theory. It's a miracle. It's ridiculous. There's another great one that follows that, the collective hallucination theory. Some people have actually put this one forth, that the women, Peter, John, and the Eleven, in hyped-up emotional distress, imagined the whole thing. They just thought they saw Jesus. There's still a problem of the missing body. Even if they all said they thought they saw him, they still couldn't produce a body. Well, then, along comes the wrong tomb theory. A classic. The women, in their distress, on Sunday morning, accidentally went to the wrong tomb. No wonder there was no body there. Of course, then, Peter and John would then have also run to the wrong tomb. And then Joseph of Arimathea would have had to forget which tomb was his. I thought, was it around the side? I can't remember. Do you have the map? Someone have a GPS? Because I do not know where that tomb is. And furthermore, the Jewish leaders themselves who set the seal on the tomb would have to forget which tomb it was. The angel would have to be sitting on the wrong stone. But Lord, not this one? I was supposed to... I don't know where I'm supposed... Someone give me directions. it's, It's ridiculous. Bottom line... Even faith set aside for a moment, if you are being intellectually honest, you cannot explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot explain away the fact that there was no body. The Jews couldn't produce it. His followers couldn't produce a dead body. The body was just gone. You can't explain that away. Add faith to the picture and you know exactly what happened. Now there's one final irony to these anti-resurrection fables which have been propagated among the Jewish people and among others even to this day. Resurrection, gang, is at the very core of Jewish faith. Resurrection is the hope of all Jewish people if they're believing Jews. The only ones who didn't believe in resurrection, you remember this is the Sadducees, which is why they were. Thank you. Resurrection was the hope, not not of the Christian, it is the hope of the Christian, but before us, gang, resurrection was the hope of the Jew. Abraham, way back in his day, Genesis chapter 23, we, we can read the story where he buys a cave in the field of Machpelah in Hebron. It's the only land purchase that Abraham would make in his entire life, though he's an incredibly wealthy man. He didn't buy any other land because the Lord said, I'm giving it to you. It's your land. It will all be yours. At the right time, this land will be yours and that of your descendants. It's going to be yours. The only land that he actually laid out money for is the cave in Machpelah, which was his burial cave. Why would Abraham do that? Well, it's interesting. Machpelah means double doors or doors that swing both ways, which is exactly what Abraham's mindset was in buying that cave. I'm buying a cave for burial to go into and come out of because I'm going to resurrect And I want to walk right out into the promised land. I want to be here in my resurrection. Rick, I think that's a stretch. Well, the Hebrew writer, chapter 11, verse 10, said Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
Abraham had faith that God was going to produce what God promised. And that was that the land would belong to him. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the woman Hannah, Samuel's mother, prayed, the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Hannah believed in resurrection. David believed in resurrection. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now we know that's prophetic. It speaks of Jesus. But he also was speaking of himself. You're not going to leave me in Sheol. When I die, that's not it. Remember what he said? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Psalm 23. Did you catch that he didn't say, though I end up in the valley of the shadow of death? He says, though I walk through it, I fear no evil. I know I'm going to be with you forever. Resurrection. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 9 says, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, some commentators think that that's just an allusion to Messiah. But if you're taking it literally, the Lord says, I'm going to raise up David. I believe David is going to be raised up and in the millennial kingdom, he's going to serve as a vice president to Jesus. He will be a vice regent there in the millennial kingdom. Raised up. Resurrected. And if you want a little more proof, Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. Daniel was told, As for you, go your way to the end. You'll enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Resurrection was the hope of the Jewish people. Resurrection was at the heart of Jewish faith. One more verse. Paul. The Apostle Paul is before King Agrippa. King Agrippa was a great-grandson of Herod the Great and actually had an affinity, a fondness for the Jews. He, he was one of the few Herods that kind of looked out for the Jews. And his wife, or sometime wife Bernice, also kind of tried to help the Jews when and where they could. And they considered themselves part of the Jewish people, though they technically really weren't. Paul is standing before King Agrippa in Caesarea. And he says the following, Acts chapter 26, verse 6. Now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which the twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? And what is Paul saying? He's saying Jewish people... Why do you see this as an incredible thing? Why is the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ amazing to you? Why is Paul saying that? Because resurrection was at the heart of Jewish faith. Why be surprised when the very thing happens that you believed would happen? Christians, let me ask a question. Why are we surprised when someone's healed? Isn't that what God said would happen? Why are we surprised... When miracles occur? Didn't he say they would? Why will people of faith be surprised at the coming and calling home of Jesus Christ? They're just not ready. That which is at the very core of our faith. The tragedy of the Jewish denial that Matthew points out here of the resurrection of Jesus is that it flies in the face of everything on which they set their future hope. It was the answer to their faith. And to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, gang, is to deny your resurrection future as well. Yesterday in Israel and today in America was Yom HaShoah. 
which is the National Day of Remembrance of the Holocaust. And the Jewish people take it very seriously. And it's a very somber day. A day of remembering the six million lives that were killed, that were lost. A day of looking back. A day of sorrow. There's a lot of days of sorrow on the Jewish calendar. And how tragic is that? At a time right now where over the last 24 hours, Jews the world over are remembering this horrible thing and no one's remembering the wonder of the resurrection which answered Jewish faith. And that's where Matthew ends, although verse 16 tells us the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful, (laughs) even then. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And we'll talk about that more on Sunday, but that officially concludes our study through the book of Matthew, Gospel of the Great King. Father, it is resurrection we believe in. It is resurrection we hope for. And on this cold night, it's resurrection we look forward to. But God, we praise You. Jesus, we affirm tonight in our faith what we have not seen with our eyes, but we know with our hearts that Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And Jesus, because of this resurrection, we have a living hope and a future to which we look forward and a motivation, Father, a motivation to live now with all the joy and energy of the women who recognize the body was not there. Father, may we go running. May we come and see and go and tell. And may we be of use to You until Jesus calls us home again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.